Welcome back to the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Strength and Speed owner and Conquer the Gauntlet Pro, Evan Preparis. I got a guest with me today. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Exoskin. Exoskin is a seamless athletic apparel, 100% made in the USA, completely veteran-owned company. Recently picked up two different pairs of their shorts and two different pairs of their socks. They're awesome. Uh, They're made with this PTFE and copper, so it's like the PTFE is like kind of what Teflon is made of, so it you know reduces friction, uh, kind of repels water, so great for obstacle course racing. And the copper has basically antibacterial properties, right? So it's gonna you know the stuff we're jumping in during the middle of OCR is not the cleanest water typically, so that that's a nice touch too. We've also got a 30 day money back guarantee, so if you're not sure if you want to pick up a pair, want to give them a test out. You can head over to exoskin.us and use code STRENGTH20 to save you 20%. You know, we don't get a kickback from that. That is That, that discount is all going to you. And make sure you look for my reviews coming out on Mud Run Guide soon, talking about their products. And then also be on the lookout, uh, the launching a new thing called Exo Underwear. So that can be used as a liner short or worn as an underwear. And uh, first ever seamless short with sewn on two-way stretch elastic waistband. Now, I actually have been wearing the regular shorts as underwear for some, you know, um, sometimes when I dress up nice or I've been doing some martial arts training, so I've actually been wearing them for that too. And they work pretty well for that, but uh, I am excited for the XO underwear. Gonna Definitely going to pick up a pair of those too, uh, test them out, and then I'll probably throw another review up on Motoring Guide. So uh, head over to exoskin.us, use code STRENGTH20, and uh, yeah, that's it. Let's jump into today's episode. Joining me, I have Aris Macris. He is a pancreation instructor in, in Montreal, and he owns his yeah. own uh, martial arts studio that teaches pancreation. And uh, he's got the rank of uh, Pedotrivis Delta Taxis, kind of like master instructor. And we're going to be talking about pancreation today. And, you know, normally this is an obstacle course racing focused podcast, but we like to bring on athletes from other sports and try to pull some lessons learned from them and apply it to the world of obstacle course racing. So we're going to be spending most of the episode talking about kind of martial arts or and uh, uh, pancreation, and then we'll kind of cross over to OCR at the very end. Aris, thanks for coming on. Uh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate Thank you for the invite. It was very, uh, very gracious of you. And it's, it's, it's great to be on uh, uh, a podcast outside of my own city, you know, which is, uh, and from a fellow Greek as well. Yeah. Which is... In the military as well, you know, so everything is kind of relevant uh, today and relative. Yeah, the, your accent reminds me of uh, being home in New York. Like, I feel very, when I talk to you, I feel like I'm back in at home with my family. So I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> That's like we consider that a hick accent over here, you know. All right. We have our own little, our own little areas here, which are very, very uh, Greek. And everybody says, well, oh, your accent reminds me of that area, you know, so Wow, you can take the boy out of the village, but you can never take the village out of the boy, right? Right, right. All right, so, you know, a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with pancreation. I mentioned it on a, a couple, uh, episode actually a couple months ago, but let's start off with, like, the basics. You know, like, what is pancreation? Well, pancreation in, uh, in its entirety, I mean, in, in the original uh, the original. Uh, meaning is pagratio, uh, pagratio, pancratio, you know, depending on the dialect where you came from uh, ancient, uh, from back in Greece, pagratio, uh, pancratio, 
it means uh, all powers in short, you know, all encompassing powers. And what they meant by all encompassing powers is they meant all encompassing powers. So depending on this, you know, in most schools back then uh, taught basically this, it was the same derivative, but, you know, uh, depending on the state that you were in, it was practiced slightly different. But uh, it means all powers. That means everything. That means uh, harmony between, and there's a lot of misconceptions, you know, as to how they, they got to where they got, you know. But it means, uh, it means uh, complete, complete, a complete warrior. Because even in the, even in the Bible, in the, Greek, uh, in the Greek version, in the original Greek version, pagratios uh, refers to God, meaning almighty. So when they say pagratio, it's a derivative of the word, you know, and uh, that means all-encompassing power within our own powers, right? So that means, if it means grappling, it means, uh, it means uh, you're a complete fighter. That meant you can grapple, you can strike, you can, you can, you can, you can, and striking meant hands and legs. It didn't mean you can botch or you can kick botch or you can, you know, they didn't break it up like that. It was striking and it was, you know, <clears throat> and grappling were together. It was pagratio. They just didn't separate these things. And all depend where you came from. You were from uh, Sparta. It was practiced. Uh, it was practiced uh, in its entirety. If you were from Athens or the other states, it was it was more water, slightly watered down. Now, what we consider watered down is what they considered watered down to us. That's brutal in today's world. It would be brutal because nobody trains that way. And now, if you can, that's that's the Athenian. Now, if you were to look at the Spartan side of Pancration, uh, don't forget, Spartans were were very, mostly all of the warriors back then were very well-rounded. And, you know, it does relate to your, to this, you know, the uh, the obstacle course races. I mean, these guys, it was a physical world. They had to be able to do everything and anything, you know, running, uh, running through obstacles. I mean, some of their obstacles was absolutely insane, yeah. you know, so... Sparta's, Sparta's version of pancreation was what we do in war, we do in practice. That's exactly what they did. So there's a nice little story, if you want me to tell you, about this guy, Alcibiades from Athens, uh, who went down to Sparta. And uh, he was a pancreatist. He was an, an Olympian. He was, uh, he was a very well-known Olympian and champion pancreatist from Athens. And he decided to go train in Sparta. And, you know, the Spartans back then would have... Uh, having somebody come in from outside knowing that they know what kind of life they led, led within Sparta, you know, they, they, they embraced them because it took, it took guts. It took a lot of guts and I'm being very, very modest with my wording. Right. So it took spine man to get into, you know, to go through the training that the, the Spartans went through. So he spent two years in uh, Sparta and he went back to Athens two years later and uh, he was sparring with one of his uh, one of his teammates, and he got caught in a rear naked uh, choke. And before the guy could apply it, uh, Alkiviades grabbed his arm and tucked his chin in deep and took a bite out of the guy's arm. So the guy let him loose. <laughs> Alkiviades, you know, reversed the position, and he and he submitted the guy. Now the guy got up. Here's the the interesting part of this. This is how they viewed things back then compared to how we view things today. The, you know, the the guy got up and goes. And he looked at Alkiviades, he goes, Alkiviades, and he's swearing at him, and he's going, you know, you, you know this is, you're disgusting, man. He goes, you bite like a bloody woman. And Alkiviades, he got pissed. 
he got mad. He got up and he got, you know, you think he got mad because the guy says you bite him. And he got up and he goes, I don't bite like a woman. He goes, make no mistake, I bite like a lion. <laughs> so to them, biting was every bit of it. It wasn't an end-all thing, but it was a great strategic distraction to, you know, <clears throat> get the guy to focus away from where he was and, you know, then continue with the job. And it was something that was that he had learned in Sparta. Whereas in Athens, it was unheard of during practice. In Sparta, everything went. Yeah, I was I was doing some research and, on the uh, on the sport, and yeah, like Spartan was like, yeah, we're cool with biting and eye gouging, and like basically, essentially, oh, yeah, no, yeah, like yeah. legitimate, you know, like the original UFC was like, yeah, we do no rules, but no biting, no eye gouging, but like. Sparta back in the day was biting and eye gouging allowed. And then the other city states were, you know, no biting, no eye gouging, but, you know, striking, grappling. Don't forget. Yeah, their war was all, you know, taking steel to somebody. This is not what we do today. You know, their war was mano a mano. It was close quarters. That's what it was. So it was the ultimate in being able to, you know, to, to, to fight in close quarters. Say they... You know, the Spartans were very methodical in what they did. They go, what you do in training doesn't just reflect what you're going to do in reality. It is reflexive of what you're going to do in reality because no matter what you do, you're drawing a response from the other person, cause and effect. They were masters of cause and effect. Yeah, I mean, we see that in the military today, right? Like the whole saying, you know, train like you fight, right? Because... And, you know, in martial arts too, right? So when you are in a high stress situation, you're going to resort, rely on what you've done in training. So your body will like reflexively fall back to that because that's what you've rehearsed, you know, hundreds and thousands yeah, of times. Exactly. Well, the, in the, you know, the, the, the Greek philosophers used to say you, uh, in battle, you rise to the level of your training. Today, they've kind of like, you know, reversed it a little bit, you know, just gave it a different spin to it. They go, today, under pressure, you know, under pressure in reality, in battle, which is under pressure, do you fall to the level of your training? Yeah. This today's, you know, this today's spin on it. But in reality, that's what it is. Whether you want to say it rise to the, you know, they, they considered it rise back then because, you know, they, they, they thought, they perceive, you know, ultimate training is, you know, is exalting, you know, in you're exalted in battle. So you rise to that occasion, you rise to your training. And that, and that was more for the Spartans because they spent 14 hours to 16 hours a day training compared to everybody else who spent maybe two or three. Yeah. So, you know, more time spent in the training of whatever you're doing affords you more, more time to figure out, you know, the nicks and crannies of that particular drill that you're doing because you encounter so many obstacles along the way within that drill, within that time. So, yeah, you know, it was reflexive for them. They knew that, you know, there were no rules in combat. So, you know, when the UFC, you mentioned the UFC, the first UFC, they opened up, there was still like, they still had rules. I don't think you were allowed to uh, to hit the joints. I think the knee joints and the and the back of the cervical spine or the throat. You weren't allowed to do that. Aside from the eye gouging and biting, there were certain other rules that you were not allowed to do. And yet, people still found that brutal, right? By today's society, because don't forget, all of them were uneven. None of them were even. If you would have seen all of them even as they were today, you'd see a completely different fight. 
So it was very, very brutal, you know, in the sense that people, you know, take one style take advantage of another style's missing elements. So in essence, what you saw was a pancreation match without pancreatists. Yeah. Nobody, <laughs> nobody was equally, uh, you know, nobody was equally matched. There was no equal match. One guy was missing grappling. The other guy was missing boxing. The other guy was missing striking. The other guy was just striking. The other guy was only grappling, you know, and, and we all know, you know, like, you know, based on the rules, one has an advantage over the other yeah. if you're unequal. So it was a different time. So I've heard uh, uh, pancreation being called the first, I've heard people refer to it as like the first mixed martial arts. So, you know, how old is pancreation, first of all? Well, if you want to talk about, <clears throat> you know, we distinguish uh, reality from legend, right? Yep. Now, when we, when we look historically backwards, we see, because you can see it in Homer's Iliad and Homer's Odyssey, you know, pancreation. So we know that Homer's books, there's, there's three accurate books. There's, anyway, uh, there are three books that are, to date, known to be very historical books that are known to be extremely accurate, nonfiction. Very, uh, oh, sorry, uh, they, they, they are... They are nonfiction. They are, they are as real as you can get. And archaeology has proven, and forensic archaeology and history has has uh, has brought them out into fruition. You know, and that is the Iliad, the um, the the Odyssey, and the Bible. Okay, so those are three books. And now, Homer's Iliad and and, uh, and Odyssey both have inside references to pancreation. Now, if you take each person's story separately in there. Homer, Agamemnon, Eleos, Achilles, Ajax, and yada, 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 yada. Each one have their own stories separately. Aside from that, this is the beauty about ancient Greek history, is each one of these have been, you know, preserved. But Homer preserved them in one big piece. Now, Homer's, Homer's, uh, uh, <clears throat> and then uh, Homer's books are, were written a thousand years after the fact. And yet, yeah. the accuracy of the historical, the historical accuracy, uh, is is intact. So now you take the book of Orpheus, Orpheus, who was part of the Jason's Argonauts, you know, the Orpheica, you know, the Orpheica, the Orpheic hymns. Well, they have in their in that book reference to their their ancestors practicing pancreation and. You know, the Orphaic hymns are very old, you know. Uh, they are very old. Uh, how old they are? A few thousand years old. So, you know, they go way back then. So if you're looking at just legend, and we don't have legend. We have, in our history, we have fact. Because most of these have been brought out. We know where Odysseus lived. We know where Achilles lived. We know where Jason lived. They've uncovered a lot of their stuff. You know, their places of domicile. They've uncovered all this stuff. So it's not something that is out of, a, out of a movie. These are real. You know, all it requires is just people to just go in and do the research and find out where these places are. They've already discovered them. You know, so pancreation goes far back. Now, you know, most modern historians who are, you know, going through the Internet and just looking at copy-paste, uh, you know, uh, copy-paste scenarios, they, 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 they look at it as, well, you know, it spanned out with Alexander the Great, you know. Well, Alexander the Great was, was a contributor to his military going across, you know, into the Indian Kush and 
through the Indochina Trail, you know, they stopped in India. And then from then, a lot of his guys had moved out when Alexander the Great had died. You know, the Indians took him. Now, they, some tried saying, well, Kalaripayat was older than Pancration. Chronologically, no. Legend-wise, well, China is a million years old. But we know that historically, China did not become China up until after Alexander the Great's death mm. as a nation. Before then, mm. it was just tribes. So there was no China. There was no China, no China. There was just tribes. So <clears throat> they didn't have anything that was established that was holistic. I mean, Alexander the Great walked in, you know, and just his, his pancreatus, all of them were, were trained in pancreation, and his pancreatus just walked over these guys. You know, the, you know, you take a look at Porus, King Porus's uh, army, the Indian army, who he fought against, that was the shortest battle done. It was the shortest battle in, in the sense that it didn't take very long. Uh, you know, if Kalaripayat was so powerful and so this and so yad, you'd think they would have made a better stand. But it wasn't. Kalaripayat was not as old. And if you take a look at, we, see, we look at, we look at things from two perspectives, function or uh, cosmetic, yeah. you know. And pancreation was always function. There was no ritual. There was no religion within pancreation. Pancreation was the study of the art of war, but taught he taught in schools, the Aristotelic school, the Socratic school, the Platonic school. They were taught in schools because in, in those schools back then, pancreation was part of their learning. It was part of their education. I can, like they used to say, I can think, hence, uh, from one side of the spectrum, hence, I can fight from the other side of the spectrum. I can do everything in between. Because anyone who had graduated from these schools were like Alexander the Great, and he wasn't the only one, who were masters at they were they were a student mathematics and history at religion at uh, he, he was a botanist he was a mathematician the guy was just you know most of these guys that came out were just very talented because the school of life back then back then was taught was, were, were they were teaching different things as opposed to just occupation as we are as they are teaching kids today yeah. so pancreation was yeah. part of that and pancreation was very 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 scientific. You know, there was nothing non-methodical about that. I just think today there's a misconception. You know, a lot of people, I used to get into, uh, you know, discussions on the internet. I stopped getting into discussions <laughs> on the internet. <laughs> you know, Probably a good call. Because it just doesn't, it doesn't go right. You know what I mean? Like, you, you know, people are stuck, and I don't blame people because they're, they're kind of like stuck with the image that they have, given the info that's in front of them. Don't forget, you know, there's books and books, the old books, Xenophon, Pafsanias, you know, the fake hymns, the Iliad, the this, the that, the yada, 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 that all depict pancreation in there. You'll always see it in there. You know, and, and, the, and the thing with that is that, you know, most people today are just getting their stuff off the Internet. So they try to equate with what they see and they put an image in their head with what they know. I had a discussion with one guy. I think it was more like an argument than a discussion. I didn't want to argue. I was just trying to tell the guy. He goes, uh, dude, there was boxing in pancreation. Dude, there was no boxing in pancreation. Pancreatus were not boxers. They were not pigmachi. Yeah. They were pagratiaste. So when two people walked by and they saw pancreatus, uh, you know, they saw two guys, you know, rolling and, and hitting each other while rolling and standing up and taking shots and kicks and, and clinching and kneeing and, and elbowing and this, they would ask, what is he doing? Well, in the Greek term, it was called pagratievode. It was a, real, it was a verb. Pancreation was a verb, is a verb, you can't say that in English. 
he's pancreatizing. <laughs> it just doesn't go like, it sounds, you know, it sounds just dumb. But that's what it was. You can't, you can't translate that. So, and this is what they did back then. You know, they did not box. They did not wrestle. And another thing, you know, a guy was going, well, dude, how did they get to box like that? You know, it's like boxers, you know, taught, taught Pancratius how, how to box and wrestlers how to, and wrestlers taught them how to wrestle. It's the biggest malarkey, you know, and it, this is what happens when you're not, when, you know, you, you, your main source is the internet. I mean, just the internet. Yeah, you got to get books, man. I mean, if you really want to know what happened. So the, this is a known fact that no Pancratiists not only did not go to a boxer to learn how to punch or to a wrestler to learn how to, to learn how to throw or pull any wrestling maneuver, but they, they considered those two inferior and not worthy to train alongside with, meaning Pancratiists trained separately from these guys alone in their own little place. And you know who they had with them? Musicians. <laughs> Musicians and sculptors, because they considered musicians scientific. There was a rhythm to what they were doing. Interesting. And that kind of like equates to Cali with, you know, the old Cali schools where they would play the bongos. There's a rhythm that they go with because it is musical. It's rhythm. It's rhythmic in training. In reality, there's absolutely, they would say, it was a monstrosity. When two men engaged, it was a monstrosity. When they practiced, it was poetry. But in reality, it was a monstrosity happening in front of you. It was the ugliest thing. Yeah. So, but they would not engage any boxer or wrestler. They considered them. See, there was never in the history of pancreation. Let me, you know, <clears throat> I talk a lot, but because of my age, if I, if I stop, I forget I'm done. So I'm feeding a lot of information here. So the thing is, if, you know, there's no record saying that any wrestler or boxer ever joined, ever uh, participated in a pancreation tournament and won or lost for that matter. They just didn't. Whereas there's plenty of records nonstop. They have records of almost all Olympic events or the main events or, 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 or Delphian events, you know, where they have the records of the winners in wrestling in boxing in this and in, in uh, pancreation in running in the armored run, you know, so they have those there. It's just for people to go look for them. Right now. There's no record of any of these guys joining any pancreation, participating in a pancreation tournament. But there are plenty, plenty documented, you know, stories of, uh, and they have the winners down of pancreatists who, in the same event, won the pancreation, then went over and won the wrestling and won the boxing. How do you do that against a guy who specializes in wrestling and a guy who specializes in boxing? Yeah, it's wild. Well, it's pretty easy if you consider that wrestling was one form back then, meaning if you were to combine judo, jiu-jitsu, uh, well, I wouldn't say as far as jiu-jitsu is concerned uh, to that extent because there's many rules for different jiu-jitsu tournaments, but if you were to take judo, wrestling, and jiu-jitsu and, and anything that had to do with, with any throw and any lock, including small fingers, small joint locks and breaks, okay, it was all one thing. I was wrestling back then. I can drop a guy on his head. I can, I can snap his fingers. I couldn't hit him, but I can twist his neck off. I can, you know, you, you take a look at Eddie Bravo's, you know, uh, twister, 
you know, and they had that back then. You know? <laughs> they did those, man. It was, you know, they were allowed to do that. They can, they can, they can leg lock and break toes at the same time. And it was very hard to leg lock back then because, you know, except especially in pancreation, because guys would know how to, you know, kick up. They were allowed to kick upwards. They were allowed to kick hard. So it was hard to control big, big legs, you know. And the thing is, a lot of, the, uh, you know, something that a lot of people don't take into consideration there were no weight categories. Yeah. yeah. So that means that the smallest guy there was as monstrous as a fighter as the biggest guy today. The smallest guy back then at 140 pounds would look at a 200-pound guy today like the new uh, UFC champion, Ngomu, whatever his name is, um, and he would look at him and go, okay, next. Next. There's another guy to eat up. Yeah. Because... You know, when you have no rules and you have no weight class, you've got to be one hell of a thinker here. You have to be strategic. You got to know yourself very well. You got to know you know, body dynamics and body, you know, body kinetics really, really well. And you, you know, there's no mistaking here because you know what the strengths of the other guy was, and you know what your strengths were. Now, most of the time, I don't want to say most of the time, but quite a bit of the time, the, the, the heavier guys would win. But that wasn't all of the time. That was most of the time. But there was no rules. There was no weight class. So the little guy had to, and it wasn't all the time. It was, I'd say, 40, 50, you know, 45, 55%. That's what it was. 40, 55% they won most of the, that, that would be considered most of the time. Yeah. The little guys had a big chance back then. So we so, covered we know, covered a bunch. There, there, of, no. I was gonna say we covered a bunch of the differences. You know, the essentially pancreation, you know, ancient Greece, literally no rules, no weight classes. Um, you know, what are some of the other differences with MMA? Right, like are pancreatius they're going in bare fisted, right? Or are they wearing you know like because well, modern MMA wears gloves, right? Okay, bare fisted. Uh, you know, they they train with they train with punching bags. Their bags were different back then in the sense that they used various type of rocks within bags. They'd use sand, then they'd use a mixture of sand and smooth rock. And then sometimes they use jaggedy rock, you know, depending on the, the effect they wanted on their hands, right? No bag was less than about 300 pounds back then. Now, it wasn't just the weight itself. It was the, you know, the, the, what you would feel upon impact, I mean, the surface itself. These guys developed serious power. I mean, like they had no gloves. They were the only guys that worked with uh, Imandas, which was wrappings. Leather wrappings were the boxers. Yep. Pancreatus, because they had to grab. You know, they 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 trained without anything. So they kick into that shin kick, front kick. You know, and elbow and punch and and claw into that. Where they have stories where they would rip into the pigskin bags. I mean, literally rip into the pigskin bags with their with their fingers. You know, they would like literally claw, palm, punch. They used the whole shebang. Now, imagine whacking away 350 to 400 pound bags. Now, I have a 250 pound sandbag in my school. It is about 11 inches in diameter and about four feet tall. Okay, 11 inches in diameter. The average pig bag back then was about two feet in diameter and about four feet tall. So can you imagine how much that weighed? Yeah. And the type of impact that that had. So these guys would put their fists through that. 
Can you imagine meeting up with a guy whose fist, his fist is harder than the surface that he's been hitting? So it's not just the weight, but it's what the the punches, the knuckles are encountering upon impact, you know, where the body would compensate for that. And obviously these guys were good eaters. So, you know, their knuckles would be developed. I mean, they're tired. The little bones in their, in their, in their fists, their ligaments, their tendons would just they were, talk about reinforcement, you know? Yeah, I mean so that's like were. that. That's the original iron body, iron bone uh, training there, right? Like, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, so you, you see a lot of like the it's popular like the Shaolin monks, right? Like getting the, you know, super hard uh, shins or fists or um, even crotches, yeah, right? Iron crotches. But yeah, yeah, that's yeah the original know, I, one. I don't know if the, the Spartans or the Greeks like getting kicked in the groin. Or yeah, <laughs> that, that one. The... They were active, you know. <laughs> so I don't know if they, you know. I don't think they included, you know, they, they, they add that into the training, but I mean, like they were tough. Uh, they were extremely tough. Yeah. I just and, finished a book that talked about uh, iron, iron growing training. And I was like, mm, hard pass. That sounds, <laughs> sounds like something I'll, I'll definitely pass on. Absolutely. Are you kidding? I mean, those are things that I don't want to discover. You know, I always <laughs> have absolutely no, you know, no, pl- no plans in the future, you know, whatsoever. But, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I don't see me going into a monastery anytime soon. If, if I do, you know, it'll be something to consider, you know, but right. uh, it was. So, you know, pancreation, we that right, you know, thousands of years old, um, no rules, you know, kind of uh, all out fighting, uh, all powers. Right. So, you know, I'm tracking that it was, you know, it was around a couple thousand years ago, uh, lasted for a couple hundred years. And then I'm tracking, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but like it basically disappeared for, um, a couple hundred years before it kind of came back in uh, the modern era. Is that, mm-hmm. is that correct? Uh, somewhat. <clears throat> somewhat. Can you give us like a little background between like, you know, ancient, ancient pancreation, like through today? I know that's like a, that's a huge topic, but like, okay. you know, well, how, how do we go okay. from the ancient pancreation to today? Oh, that's a, that's a big time, time machine leap. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we had, we went through the, the Byzantines, right? So, I mean, like after the Roman empire, uh, Theodosius, he, he, uh, abolished the Olympics back in three, 380 uh, AD. Uh, they were still doing pancreation until then. Right. So, uh, people were scattered into their own places back then. It was uh, the Christian era too. So, you know, a lot of the Christians moved on to Constantinople, the majority of them where they, they, they had freedom there. Um, and uh, in parts of Greece, it, it, because pancreation was still, was still practiced even in Rome. Uh, there was pancratium back then too. Now, the thing is that as far as the Greeks are concerned, uh, the, Roman, the Roman version uh, was called pancratium. So, uh, you know, in, in Italy today, they'll call it pagratio, you know, but the Latin word for it was pancratium. So, now, a lot of this went, uh, went, went kind of like, it didn't just disappear back then, but don't forget, back, you know, we weren't, uh, it wasn't like today where things are publicized, they're marketed. There was no marketing back then, it was a necessity. You know, Constantine's armies uh, were, were trained hand-to-hand, they were trained like that. You know, uh, when we had, when we had, for example, the Turk, the uh, the Turks uh, come in, everything went underground. We weren't allowed to pray. We weren't allowed to uh, be taught anything, to be schooled. We weren't allowed to train. There was nothing. So everything that happened happened underground. There was a few families that that kept it up. But you know, when you consider <clears throat> the the few things that 
that these families did, it wasn't enough. You can't say it was entire systems. I mean, but they did teach because don't forget, you took, if you were to take, fast forward a little bit and go to 1821, and you're looking at small groups of Greeks against massive, you know, regiments of Turks, these guys weren't just fighting with, they weren't fighting with guns. The gun, it was one shot, boom, they were still sword. Well, where are they learning the sword from? Yeah. And they were very good swordsmen. You know, and we're talking now back then when the Venetians were great swordsmen, the French and the English and the Spaniards, and, you know, they had their own, you know, they already had, you know, they had the time to evolve, whereas us, we had 400 years of almost annihilation. So where did they come up with this? It was all taught underground. Now, was it publicized as pancreation? No. But I can tell you, though, when I did, when I was serving in the military in Greece, I was in Rhodes, and I walked into a, a little a store in the old city of Rhodes, and it was a little, uh, a little uh, variety store, you know, a little touristic variety store selling touristic stuff and beach stuff and cameras and whatever. Yeah. There was a little old man there. He must have been about 80. He was about 80, anywhere between 80 and 85 years old, okay? Kind of looked like he was wearing a tracksuit, you know, very, very humble man, very, very, uh, very, very gentle man. And behind him there were pictures and pictures of him in various kicks, you know, in, 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 in stances, you know, that you would see in, you know, boxer's stand, or when I say boxers, I'm just generalizing, you know, you'd see a, a, a guy yeah. that would, you know, in a stance, in a fighter stance, you know, where, you, you know, you might get, you know, you'd get a guy, you ready to kick or punch or whatever. And I, I was very curious, I go, and it, in the pictures, he looked like you took them yesterday because it wasn't some young guy, it was an old guy. And he goes, and I go to him, well, what are those? Who is that guy in the back? He goes to me, well, that was me. I go, so what are you doing there? He goes, oh, I'm doing Pagratio. Mm. I go, Pagratio? See, he goes to me, oh, Pagratio. He goes, that's what, we, that's what we call it. He goes, because they came from Asia Minor, these guys. They carried it from Asia Minor, these families. Now, nobody knows exactly which are these families. There's not one person. Nobody knows. Not Arvanitas. Not, none of them in Greece know which families are these families. Because... During that time, they didn't live a comfortable life, you know, where they can evolve their art. And while, mind you, in Constantinople, for Greeks during that time that were still living under the Ottoman rule, there was the, the Hellenic Sport Association housed, okay, a few events, a few sporting events. One of them was tennis. Uh, it was soccer. The other one was Fencing, boxing, wrestling, and pancreation in those sporting events, in, the, in, in that community. They had that. But, you know, they were under tight, you know, this tight-knit, you know, hostage-like, you know, scenario. We're still under the, you know, they were still under the rule of the, of the Turks. The Greeks couldn't do nothing in Constantinople, you know, in Asia Minor. They couldn't do nothing. So even after they were, you know, they were liberated, they still couldn't do nothing because they were on the side of the Turks. They were on the Turkey side on, you know, Constantinople had been, had, you know, having been taken over. So, you know, for them, it wasn't something that they can get out and say, well, we have room now and time and the luxury to be able to, you know, push this like the Japanese did. And, you know, they had the luxury of doing that. Nobody, nobody swung down, you know, on the, uh, on the Japs. So, we, we didn't have that luxury, 
we for us it was about rebuilding meaning rebuilding lives how many came from asia minor back then in the exchange you know and even before the exchange migrated over into greece and a lot of these people had these backgrounds but they were starving they needed you know and this is what this man told me i don't know if he's around today we're talking about 1993 it was 80 then 80 something yeah, yeah. So and and I go to, and he goes to me. We came over. He goes. We were starving. We were we weren't even accepted by the local Greeks here. He goes. We were looked upon as as you know as 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 as, as illegal migrants. You know, we weren't even looked upon as Greeks. Imagine. So he goes. We came over. We were starving. We had no food. We had no work. You think I'm? You think I had that? Now this is 1993. The guy is obviously lived you know, through this time, and he's he's able to, you know, put these things together. He says, you think we had time to sit there and market our art like it was a marketing thing, like we had magazines? Yeah, Don't yeah. forget, the magazines that yeah. were pushed in the United States, Evan, were not from Japanese or Chinese people. They were from Americans, you know, pushing, uh, you know, pushing an, ind- it was an industry for marketing. They were making money out of it. Japanese back then didn't want to teach anybody their stuff. Only a few traveling guys would do that in exchange for work and stuff like that. You know, so the Greeks had moved over into Asia Minor. They were like, the guy goes to me, the last thing on my mind was, was to teach people martial arts. I was starving. I had a family, he goes. I had no food. We were yeah. just being chased out. Half my family yeah. was annihilated. He goes... To think about this, he goes, but then he goes, as time passed on, you know, and we settled ourselves this now, we kept it to ourselves. He goes, we just trained. He goes, this is what we did. We just trained. Now, at that time, Greece had gone a completely different revolution. So, now, if you want to compare, if you want to fast forward to today, well... That's a whole totally different story, man. <laughs> well, well, let's jump. Let's jump in, yeah, let's jump into your story personally. Like, how, how did you, you know, did you study other martial arts first uh, before you found prank creation? And then how did, like, how did you get involved in that world? Well, I started like everybody else in the Asian martial arts, you know, and uh, and the reason was Bruce Lee. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> he was everybody's reason back then. So, you know, but as we went on, you know, I mean, I was exposed to different teachers, different things. And uh, I grew up on the streets and uh, we had our own Bronx here, our own Harlem, you know, and our own Harlem and Bronx were, were just as brutal as, uh, as New York's. I mean, you know, people are people, brutality is brutality, right? So street fighting and street gangs back then were as brutal here as they were anywhere else. So, you know, you're taking martial arts. And I mean, I went from the Japanese arts at the same, you know, the, the thing that made it different for me was uh, I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing a martial art, but we're also street, you know, we're also gang fighting at nighttime and I'm, and I can't apply any of the stuff that they were teaching me. And, you know, I'm getting shots to the nose and no, 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 Ukiri block is going to do it. <laughs> You know, whereas my friends who were doing boxing were able to bob and weave better, and I'm going, what the heck is going on? So I jumped into boxing. You know, I'd go back to my, my karate teachers or my Chinese boxing teachers. You know, they, I would look at it and I'd go, well, you know, I walk in there with a black eye or a fat lip or whatever, you know, from you know, the gang fight we had the night before. And, you know, he goes, uh, you know, they would ask what happened. Well, I go, I tried to block, and, uh, and I would ask him questions. I go, how do you do it? I mean, I, you know, I tried to, you know, 
power, block it this way, block it outwards, and uh, and I couldn't get it down. And he goes to me, probably your timing was off. <laughs> I look at it back now when I hear that my timing is off. <laughs> There's no timing enough that you can have to be able to stop a shot coming in, you know, unless the guy's traveling at a speed where you can, you know, you, you can you can kind of like meet him halfway that slow. So you know, my teachers would ask me, goes, well, what did he do? Well, I would do what he would the other guy would do. I would fake low and come up high, and even my teacher couldn't stop it. He had no question for that, and he would tell me, you know, go after yourself. Get out of here, out of my face. You know, you're just slow. Uh, you know, when those questions can't be answered for me, you know, I, I just started snooping around, snooping. I just happened to run one run into a teacher that said, you know, uh, that, that said uh, to me, uh, I was about 14 or 13, 14 years old. He goes to me, you know what? He goes, um, you know, if had it not been for the Greeks, you know, uh, we and pancreation, we wouldn't, I didn't know what pancreation was then. He goes, uh, you know, we wouldn't have martial arts today. And uh, Masoyama was the first one that I mentioned that. And uh, I said, well, really? Wow. I mean, like, you know, we were learning our Greek history, but I didn't know what pancreation was. Then I started to delve into it. And then I started to delve a little bit more into it, more into it. You know, unless you're going in that direction, only then. And the only place you can find what pan where pancreation was, there was no internet back then. It was only through books. Yeah. Through the books. You know, the Orpheic Hymns, Pausanias, the Iliad, and then you try to, you know, with your experience. And so, but for me, I started going from place to place to place to place. I needed to, I did judo for years. I, I, I did boxing, for, amateur boxing for many, many years. And, um, you know, like till today, people can't figure out, you know, MMA guys can't figure out how the pancreas box if they didn't learn it from boxers. You know, <laughs> I go, dude. You know, it's a different dynamic when you're using feet and hands, you know, legs and hands together and a different stance altogether, you know, completely different stance. Just like there's a different stance for, you know, for boxing as there is for Thai boxing. Yeah, yeah. Because it has to accommodate different shots coming in. So, you know, the pancreas had to be adapted to either being shot in, you know, or kicked or punched and being able to negotiate that and, you know, carry out his strategy, his counter. So for me, it was just, it was a matter of, my questions were never answered, but I had the luxury of, well, if you want to call it that, it was like a cursed blessing, you know, where we'd be scrapping at nighttime. It was the, you know, I went to a couple of schools over here, which were notorious for, for notorious for scrapping. We would scrap at least one fight in there, one fight going going to school, one fight in there, the, an average of a fight after school because somebody called you out. And then you'd have at nighttime, you know, where we'd get together like seven, eight, ten guys and go meet the other neighborhood across the uh, the, the tracks and scrap it out with these guys. And then go back to our martial arts schools, you know, and none of it made sense. And then you worked as a, like a bodyguard and doorman for a oh, while too, right? I was a doorman for 20 years. That's where the proving ground was. See, That's what I was going to say. I was like, yeah, your, your stuff's been applied in real world for years, years of refinement there. Evan, it was like, it was, it was the greatest wake up call because at that time I still lived at a time where people were going one-on-one -on -one and they were still ganging up on people. And it was, there was no guns just yet. They started coming out with guns. I'd encountered a couple of those, but the majority of it was either fists or knives and bottles, broken bottles, stuff like that. Bars, you know, they cut, they'd have, they'd have extendos back then hiding in their jackets. You know, I was 25 years in clubs. So 
I mean, I, I, the amount of stuff that I've seen out there, and I, and I avoid the internet uh, conversations because, you know, when you hear most people making fun of, yeah, 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 you're going to jab him in the eyes and you're going to win the fight and stuff, or you're going to bite him and you're going to, you know, I would do this, I would do that. You know what, man, I've seen so much in 25 years and I understand that everything has its perspective. You know, a die jab is not for uh, to end the fight. Uh, a bite is not there to end the fight. These are all... These are all tactics to be able to open up different doors. That's what they are. And you have to know what kind of reaction you'll get from those and then what you need to do to be able to follow through. So that 25 years in there where I don't remember having a one-on-one, it was either two on me or five on me because we were very, very few bouncers, you know? So, and it was the brawls that would go on on a weekly basis was insane. You know, there was times where, you know, guys would come in there and they, you know, they'd pull out the knife and some of them would just, you know, pull out, grab a bottle from the bar. It was like nonsense. And then you'd have the average, you know, you'd have various guys in some of the more popular bars that I worked in and uh, that, that come in from, you know, wrestling uh, schools, uh, judo schools, boxers that have come in there and very well-known boxers here in the city. And, you know, they, you know, when they see you maneuvering in a particular way that reminds them of a hundred piranhas on a, on, on a, on a capybara, you know, they, they, they kind of come to terms with what their limitations are. So there's, in their mind, they're thinking, the average boxer is thinking, oh, I got to take him out right away. You know, well, good luck, dude. You know, I, I boxed also. <laughs> I'm not going to sit there and box you. It's not a boxing match, you know. So <clears throat> it, it provided a proving ground within those 25 years where having seen so many and so many different people come in there from various areas of the martial arts world and the, the combat sports that it, uh, it was a, it was a, a proving ground for me. It, yeah. it substantiated yeah. the reason I went in this direction and I understood reading and studying a lot of what the old guys were doing. And when I say old, the ancient Greeks were doing and my main guys I compare with, that I use as reference that we will never see here today, ever, ever. And I think some of the top names in, in MMA today have even agreed to this. You bring any one of those guys back and they would massacre these guys here. They would just, it would be a massacre. But they wouldn't agree to the rules that they have here. For example, the Spartans would not, the male, the, the adult Spartans would not participate in any Olympic sport because they, for pancreation, for example, they would participate in the other ones, like the uh, the armored run and the marathons and stuff like that, the spears and whatever. <clears throat> but they would never participate in the in the pancreation because they considered it a pussy's sport. <laughs> That's exactly how they saw it. They go, "What? No eye gouging, no biting? What are you nuts? What are you guys doing? What are you playing around? You know?" And that's exactly. So what they would do is. They would send in their youth, you know, <laughs> their youth to practice on these other poor, unsuspecting boys. And their youth would dominate. They would just massacre these guys. They were, they were ferocious, ferocious. You right, know, so their drilling processes were insane. So let's jump to today. You have your own, uh, what, do you, what do you call the, what do you call it instead of a dojo? What's it called for the uh, pancreationist? Uh, well, well, the, the real term is a palestra, right? Palestra. That's it's a palestra. I call it an academy. Okay. You know, it's a palestra. You know, that's what it was. The palestra, palevane, you know? So, uh, <clears throat> if someone um, wants to come train at your uh, palestra, right? Like, you know, you offer, do you offer kids classes, adult classes? Like, 
you know, are people going in like yeah. are people going in there expecting to get like punched in the face full force? Like, what's the? Because I think when you hear like, oh, there's an MMA gym or there's a a pancreation gym, right? Like, I think people's initial reaction is like, well, I don't want to get punched in the face. Like, I'm going to see like like I just saw on UFC last night. Yeah, well, it, you know what? Not everybody today comes in for the same reasons. You know, not everybody comes in there for those reasons. Some people don't even want to spar, and I totally respect that. You know, I'm not the guy that's going to sit there and <clears throat> coerce them or try to convince them that, you know, getting punched in the face is a good thing. It is a good thing. Some <laughs> people, though, what happens is it's a great thing. It teaches you that what were you afraid of, you know? Um, the, 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 the worst, because fear becomes a monster in a person's brain, right? And this is what most people are afraid of, getting punched in the mouth, violence. Well, if you become acquainted with violence in a very methodical way, in a way that allows you to enter, you know, get your feet wet on your own, and that's my approach. My approach is I want to entice them in a way where they they get their they want to get their their feet wet. Now, once they yeah. do want to get their feet wet, how I approach getting their feet wet is a completely different story. That in itself is as methodical because I want them to. I don't want them to just go in there and just swing at each other. I want them to go in there and be able to work on specific stuff so they can build certain defenses, certain reflexes, and certain reactions. And then at the same time, while they take the the average light shot to the mouth, you know, or the leg kick or somebody to try to shoot in, slowly, slowly they become accustomed to it. I want them to get to to get I want them to get familiar with it and, and conquer a bit of their fears first and foremost. And I've had the most Timid individual, do it my way, where I didn't force him to go in there. He just saw slowly, slowly, and he was enticed. He's tempted. He's a human being. And he wants to, you know, he's already challenging himself by being in the school and going through the drilling process that I put them through. And then slowly, slowly, he wants to open himself up to, okay, let me see, let me experience this. How do I do it? I mean, they ask questions. Well, it isn't back, it's not like back in the days where, you know, men were men and you know, they just, you know, we just did stuff and you just, you know, did it at full force. They, we, I start them slowly and you'd be surprised how, you know, they do, um, they do engage. They, you know, eventually they realize, like, okay, it wasn't that bad. And I put them with 20 ounce gloves to begin with, you know, and the younger guys, depending on who wants to go fight, for example, those are the guys that I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get a little bit more extreme with, uh, you know, I'll open them up more. But, you know, it depends on the person themselves. Kids, that's a different story. Kids will adapt to anything you teach them, anything you teach them. So, I mean, if you go to YouTube and you punch in Spartan Pancration Academy um, rank test, you'll see some videos that most parents find completely brutal. And I, I don't even send my parents that call me up and say, well, listen, I want my, uh, I want to put my kid in your school. I heard this, that, whatever. And, uh, you know, how do you do it? Well, <clears throat> you know, I don't send my parents, those type of parents to see what we do on YouTube on those particular videos. And I have a ton of those there. Uh, I just describe them. I let them come in, try a week free, you know, and uh, take it from there. But then there's some parents that say, listen, man, I want my kid to learn how to fight. Yeah. I don't want my kid being a victim. I want him to learn how to fight. I want him to toughen up. He's a wuss. He's a this. He's a that. Or he's got it, and I want him to do whatever. And then I'll say, okay, well, you're the right guy here. Go check out. <laughs> go to YouTube and check out these links, you know, <laughs> and look at that. And you'll see it's pretty brutal. Yep. I've got like five, six, seven, eight. I was scrolling through some of your videos. I was scrolling through some of your videos, and you have, uh, like, you, you tell this girl, 
Pancration, and she was like, she was beating beating up this boy at like a tournament. I was like, damn. I mean, oh, she was good. She, she her form yeah, was really was, good. She was aggressive. It was it was impressive. So is that the video fighters in action? Uh, I'm not sure. It, the it, I know in the video you actually commented that she actually like the, they gave the, the judges gave the decision to the other kid, which I don't I didn't oh, understand yeah. how. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. But I mean, she was that was in Wisconsin. She was she was doing really well. That was I in mean, Wisconsin. We actually. She was, she did. We, we, you know, we got ripped in that, man. I mean, like, we walked out of there, like, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a, they, you know, and it was good friends of mine that have the tournament, uh, that do the pro, the promotion there. But, you know, I looked at them and I go, dudes, I mean, like, you know, you ripped off some serious, you know, some serious, serious fights here, you know? I mean, like, my, that one girl was just beating up on a, uh, my daughter was beating up on a guy too. But if you take a look at, Spartan Pancration Academy rank test, you're going to see kids are just, you know, you're going to see the bulk of it. Now, I tend not to do it. That's the rank test. These are young kids, but they've been taught like that. And now yeah. a lot of these kids are still with me today, years later. It depends how you teach them. It depends the trust they have in you and, you know, what, the, what method you use. You use a, a method that allows them to open up themselves. They feel tough. Give them a mountain, they'll climb it. Give them a molehill and make them make it sound like it's Mount Everest. They think they've accomplished something. They've accomplished nothing. In reality, and under pressure, they'll never be able to. Uh, it'll never be able to hold water. So that's why, again, I go back to the what. What can you do under pressure? So I make sure that the kids slowly, slowly adapt to these stresses and anxieties, and they learn to manage them by facing them slowly, slowly. Eventually, they're pounding. If you look at like, like I said, you look at Spartan Pancreation Academy rank test. Take any one of those videos, they're beating the daylights out of each other. None of them are complaining. And they're all good friends. <clears throat> None of them are complaining. They're all great friends. Why? Because they they familiarized themselves with it. They became okay with it. It was nothing new to them. It was just exactly what it was back to the Spartans. But if you baby kids today. Kids are kids are amazing. You know, my, my daughter is used to seeing me run for literally hours and, you know, like, 50 mile races and 25 mile races, 90 mile race, et cetera. So when she, 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 when she's five and she runs a mile, like she wasn't even like, she's like, oh, I ran a mile. And I was like, you know, I was like, Damn, that's awesome. For like a five-year-old, that's like insane. You know, yeah, because that's what she knows. And she sees, she sees all my, all my friends are athletes. So she's, she's used to seeing females, you know, like run hard and race that's fast. Right. So, so that's what she thinks. That's, right. that's what she thinks you're supposed to do. So, like, we go to gymnastics. She'll she runs through the gymnastics course like it's a race, even though it's not. Right? They're just like they're just doing exercises. But and to hurt the challenge, you know, give her a bigger challenge, and I'm pretty sure she'll like she'll chew it up. That's what yeah. she wants now. That's what she's growing into. That's exactly what it is. That's what you're supposed to do. They so know my, that. That's what they know. Yeah. So the you know I I was looking at uh, so I got interested in martial arts last year. Started doing doing a little more research and I, you know, I, as a Greek, right, I started looking up into pancreation and I couldn't find, I found almost no pancreation schools, right? Like I found yours. And then uh, you mentioned him earlier, Jim Arvanides, who's written a couple of books. He's been on a black belt magazine. Uh, you know, I found like his, mm -hmm. I guess his private, uh, you know, private lessons or whatever he offers, but like, that's about it. You know, I found some other places that use the name in the United States uh, but then like you go to their website and they're not, 
like you know like it's pancreation school then you like you like look at the classes and they're like we teach jujitsu and boxing right like they don't use the actual like pancreation name no it's more like an umbrella name yeah that's what it is and they still can't figure out you know they're still at odds like you need to do boxing in order to do pancreation not really i need to harmonize my fit my fist with my legs my fist with my elbows with my legs and with my ability to somehow close my distance. I need to use these impact weapons to be able to close my distance when I need to. You know, so my dynamics and movement has to be relative to my environment. So I can't sit there and just do boxing only, you know, <clears throat> and take a position of a boxer only. I, I need to develop reflexes that allow my arms to move freely. And when I say my arms, I mean my fist and my elbows. So I can sit there and punch away in different boxing combinations, but I prefer to work. Now, it depends. If I'm teaching somebody brand new from from scratch, he's going to work his boxing skills, his his punching skills first. Then I'm going to harmonize him with his elbows, his elbows second. Then I'm going to harmonize these two together. So, you know, if you're looking at a more advanced individual, his drills are not punch-only oriented. It's sort of being able to put and harmonize these two together to work together, you know, because both are greater as a whole than some of the parts. So that's the difference between us. And while most MMA schools are just teaching the standard because this is what the standard was. This is what came out of the UFC. Uh, uh, Thai boxing, jiu-jitsu, and uh, wrestling. Uh, well, you're seeing a lot of the now the more traditional martial arts like taekwondo and karate guys you know, come out who have much more elaborate kicking and more versatile kicking than the average Thai guy who's got a round kick or who's yeah. got a front kick, who's got a knee. Now you're seeing these guys come in there who are doing, you know, because, you know, we're doing more of that than, uh, you know, who are showing more elaborateness in their ability, you know, to, uh, to use their legs and to use and to, to enrich their strategies. So it's still there in the infancy, if you consider it, we're moving forward, but we're still in the infancy, if you consider where the guys were back in ancient Greece, because they're having a hard time trying to understand how do you put that together? I don't do my grappling separately unless I'm teaching somebody from scratch. Okay. Then once they understand that, if everything is punch and uh, everything is strike down or strike up. Everything. Like in ancient Greece, they go, ano pagratio, kato pagratio. Stand up pancreation. Ground pancreation. Today we call it ground and pound. Uh, yeah. Ground and pound can be with a cleaver. <laughs> what is, you know, what does that mean, ground and pound? You know, so with the arno everything goes standing up and everything goes standing, you know, on the ground. Oh. So everything, all the drills are incorporated in a way where they allow me to move, but within the sphere of striking, be it with my elbows, be it with my legs, be it with my knee, my fists, you know, be it with my head. Because I, I associate, I relate first to what, you know, to real life. And real life is another term that most people have maligned, meaning that <clears throat> life and death scenario, I don't want to get caught in a, in, a, in a street fight and not have the reflexes if my head, you know, if I have the opening for a headbutt, you know, to pull the headbutt. Right. I know how to do it properly. So I need these reflexes in order for me to have those reflexes. I have to train them with, incorporate them within my drilling. Yeah, it's a difference. Good point. We're going to start bringing it back into the obstacle course racing world. So, you know, what, 
what lessons can we take from, you know, training, uh, pancreation and apply it to either training for obstacle course racing or um, maybe just kind of like life in general? Well, <clears throat> everything they did back, back in the day was for life. It was about life. That was the warrior culture back then, especially in the Aristotle, Aristotelic, the Socratic and the Platonic schools. It was, it was all about life and it was all about they will what they would encounter in life, the obstacles of life. And that for them was, this is why they said, uh, Pancreas could not just be a good fighter. You know, a, a warrior could not be a good fighter. He had to be good everything. So obstacle courses was a main dish for these guys, you know. This is why they did the obstacle, the, the first Spartan races. You know, and I was, <clears throat> I had been invited by the original owners of the Spartan races here in Quebec when they did the first one to do displays, you know. But I couldn't because I was off t uh, doing seminars in Europe. But we did participate in a lot of them. We, we still, you know, we have. We haven't in two years, but they stopped doing the Spartan race here and the uh, and the uh, Tough Mudder, and they have other smaller ones. Well, we, we wanted to do the bigger ones. They don't have big ones. So it's been about two years we haven't done one, but we did. We would constantly do them. And for, for them back in ancient Greece, you had to be everything because it was a physical world. Number one, most of these guys would – Hey, take a look at Alexander the Great. He had some of the greatest mountain climbers, you know, that anybody could have. He had to climb an entire mountain to get over to one side. He had some of the best mountaineers, you know, but everybody was able to climb. They needed to have these things. They needed to know that they can go through major obstacles. They needed to get to one place as fast as possible, you know, from one place to the other as fast as possible. And they needed to know that they can overcome any type of obstacle, any height. You know, they needed to climb ropes. They needed to be able to, you know, to walk on thin, thin walls. You know, they were, they, they, they possessed many skills because they weren't just fighters in the palestra. They were warriors on the battlefield. They needed agility. So for them, it was, they reflected as, you know, being able to put all these skills in, 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 in perspective, you know, because, okay, I mean, you, you weren't going to fight all the time, but you had to you have other skills that you can perform. And for them, it was just a matter of being able to say, I can overcome obstacles in life too, because being able to overcome these obstacles requires a certain amount of training, which requires a mindset. And that mindset is what drills, what drives the body through when the body doesn't want to go anymore. You know, same thing with the marathoners. You know, this is exactly it. It is, it is all mind. I'll give you one one example. The Spartans used to do. They used to they they have an exercise. It was called uh, it was called tree fornicating, to use a lighter word. <laughs> so you know, <clears throat> so it's tree fornicating. They line up behind this massive, massive platano. Oh, it's yeah, like yeah. an oak tree. You know, those big platania, you know, big, big, wide, wide, old, old, rock-hard trees, man. And, you know, deeply rooted trees. And they would be lined up 25, back-to-back, shield-to-back, shield-to-back, 25. And they would spend, uh, they would spend about most of their, uh, you know, on that particular drill, they could spend 14 hours on it. They can say, what are you doing 14 hours? Well, in 14 hours, you figure out what, what goes wrong, where you give out, what gives out first, where's your stability, where's your guy's stability behind you, you understand? 
you know, where, where, where do your, leg gives out, your legs give out? Where do your feet give out? Do they slip? How do they slip? Where's your stance? Where's your position? Where's your stability? And then, you know, learning how to dig in properly and where's your strength? Your, where's your first, uh, your, your, uh, your first one, your second one, your third one? You know, the longer you stay in a particular exercise, the more things you discovered along the way within that exercise. By the they're, time they're, they finish, they have just so our listeners are clear, they're they're in like a basically like a phalanx formation, pushing against the tree, right? Like they're is that what's going on? They're they're That's like right. pushing against it, yeah. And they were, they're pushing against it, trying to take it down. Now, obviously, they weren't going to take it down. So this is where the t- the scene comes in. You know, an immovable an immovable object meets an unstoppable force. You know, so they would do this, and they would do this over many many hours. Because by the, by the time, by the end of this, yes, they were exhausted, but they also learned how to settle into those positions. Like you'd look at their feet underneath, they had churned the ground to such a degree where they knew how to use their, their toes to dig into the ground. Their entire bodies came into play. They knew every nick and cranny of that position and of that, of that particular drill where they can now push. So what they used to do is, this is why they begged for a battle, the Spartans, just to relieve them of the training. So they literally begged for, for battles to come just to take a break from the training. Now, when they would meet up with a bunch of guys in a front line with shields, you know, they would bowl them over. This is what, called, this is what they would call bowling them over because they were not an unmovable object. They had spent so many hours behind that tree pushing and pushing in, in perfect formation and knowing what each position's, each person's position was relative to the other in front and behind and his personal position and how to, how to gain ground and stability and use that position with maximum force that they would bowl over an entire, an entire first, second, and third row of, of uh, soldiers. That's what the training was. You talk about a bunch of uh, a little province with a minimal amount of guys, always fighting guys that were odds of five to one to ten to one. Yeah. So you know, and in their life they were runners. Runners, they would go through crazy obstacles. They'd spend days going, you know, and their obstacles were not smoothed and softened up. They're all rough, you know, over walls, under walls, you know, crawling on gravel. You know, so they can get to because they have to maneuver. Don't forget, these guys were commandos. You know, there was a point in uh, in Thermopylae. Uh, most people don't know. This is what I mean by history is beautiful. It describes what we do today. You know, and what we lack today, and how well prepared they were to show you what kind of obstacle course runners these guys were. These these guys were amazing swimmers. <laughs> they can do stuff that you know we consider it a wow. He did a triathlon. Whereas <laughs> these guys would go, you know, would look at it today and go, what? Yeah. He swam, he biked, and he ran. That's it. These guys found their way, a small task force, group of commandos, Spartans, found their way into Xerxes' camp and mistaken his tent because he was over, he was, he was, he was a couple of tents over. And had he been in that tent, History would be telling a completely different story today. Yeah. It would have been massacred by these guys, undetected in a, in a in a 
<laughs> in, a, in, a, in an entire group of hundreds of thousands. They went through these groups, man, like they were nothing. And they got detected on their way out and still made it out. Yeah, I remember reading, Dude, some, I read uh, Gates of Fire. It's a, you know, based on mm-hmm. historical fact, right? But it's a, Stephen Pressfield wrote a description of. It's a docu-story. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he, 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 he took docu- uh, facts and basically filled in a narrative behind it and some dialogue and stuff very like accurate. that. Yeah, was, was, very accurate. It was really accurate. He took all these books and put them together. Pafsanias, Manathon, uh, uh, Xenophon. He put all of these guys together and presented the life of the Spartans in preparation for for uh, for Thermopylae. Yeah, I, a- I remember when 300 came out. I mean, it was visually it was really awesome. But I remember, and I know it's based on Frank Miller's uh, graphic novel, so it's not based on Gates of Fire. Uh, but I remember no, like what. Yeah, I remember watching the the movie and then being upset that they left out some of the stuff like the raid on Xerxes camp and you know like Leonidas I think dies at the beginning of the third day and there's like this huge battle where they're like they're they're essentially fighting over his body like they keep regaining it and then losing it and then regaining it, you know like yeah it's like oh that would have been so much cooler than uh, kind of how they did well, the have movie. Have you seen the original the three hundred? The uh, three there's a movie called Three Hundred Spartans that I've seen. Yeah, Spartans. That's right. Yeah. Have you seen that? I have. Yeah, I, I own the DVD. Cool. Yeah. It showed that part, you know, yeah. where they walked in there and they did that, you know, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, it, another great book which depicts Spartan discipline is, um, is uh, Michael Curtis Ford's uh, The 10,000. Okay. You've got to read that. Every military man should read that. I'm not going to okay. tell you what the book is about, but I can tell you that uh, it is an amazing docu-story. Again, very well put together. Uh, where the discipline, uh, Spartan discipline, was had amassed a group of people together that they considered greater than even the Spartans, trained by a renegade Spartan who Sparta themselves, Sparta had exiled because after the war of Pel- the Peloponnesian War, after 25 years, this guy still was freaking bloodthirsty. He just wanted more, you know, he couldn't get enough, and they threw him out. And, and Cyrus, you know, hired him to train a group of his most beloved 10,000 Greek mercenaries. And they considered it the greatest force after the Spartans, even greater some than the Spartans themselves. Because he put these guys through such training that I'm not going to tell you what the rest is about, what the crux, but you've got to read this book, man. I'll, I'll definitely this is an amazing book and it tells you. And it also gives you stories about how Pafsanias' dad, sorry, Xenophon's dad, you know, because Xenophon was a very, you know, very meek little boy, right? He was a very delicate kid. He didn't want, any, he didn't want anything to do with uh, wars and stuff. And his father was the general of the Athenians, okay? And uh, he would hire Pancratius to come in there and train him and beat the shit out of him <laughs> on a daily basis. You know, <laughs> that was part of his training. Pancration, and it's in the book. Awesome. So, now, you know, there's a lot of great stuff coming out of there. Like I said, we cannot compare to this, and I use these guys as my references because until you can get better guys than that, today we are lacking. We're lacking everywhere. We're just gibbering about, you know, which art is better and this and that. No art is better if you want to, if you consider them separate and, you know, within a frame of 
of of you know fixed stuff. So, you know, back then the Greeks had no limitations to it. Your family's from Sparta, correct? Like actually Sparta, Greece. My, my father's from Sparta, so the testicles come from Sparta. <laughs> my mother is from <laughs> my mother is from uh, from Arcadia. She holds from the Kolokotroni Kosoi. Uh, the Kolokotronis uh, side there, and uh, they're just as warriors as every bit as everybody else, you know, and uh, if you consider, you know, Kolokotronis was from the Arcadian was, uh, you know, he was, he was the main man of the uh, War of Independence of 1821 for Greeks against the uh, Turks, and uh, the war started in Mani on the Spartan side. That's where they originally set, you know, and decided on the war. And it was then. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, we still hold the, the Spartans down. I don't know if you've been down to Greece in those areas, but they still hold, the, you know, they, they still have that, the same genetic traits. Yeah. Hard heads, you know, so, stubborn people. <laughs> as someone with Spartan blood, how do you feel about a, uh, a business like Spartan using that, that name? Uh, to promote a race, do you like? Do you think it's cool, or is it like, yeah, kind of? I think it was pretty cool. I, you know, okay. I, I was, I was happy about them. I mean, I spoke to them. They, they reached out to me, and uh, we spoke to them. And it was, you know, it was great that they would use the name because in the beginning, they did depict, you know, the 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 difficulty level of uh, of the of the obstacle race, and it was difficult. You had to train now. Not everybody went there, you know, to get certain time, like yourself, you know, who compete uh, on a more on a more serious level. Uh, it allowed everybody to kind of like, you know, delve into getting to become a little better of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, it, you know, to finish that race, still, it did depict the mindset of the Spartan. To finish the race, you needed, you needed mindset, tenacity. You know, and I was good with that. I was very, very good with that. We we participated in almost all of them that came around. We liked it. We did enjoy it because, you know, they made it very hard. I think the ones that were the better ones were the ones in the States, like the one in Killington. It was like, Killington was brutal. Yeah. That was a, I consider that a real Spartan, uh, a real Spartan race. The American obstacles, you know, you, you hand it to the Americans, you know, to uh, put together, you know, pre prior vets. Uh, they, they put something together where, most of us Greeks that showed up there said, yeah, that's an <laughs> obstacle course, you know? So it was great. Look, I mean, you know, obstacle courses is part of, it was part of military training. It always was. And it was great that it can be applied to the average person out there that gave them the chance to say, wow, there's more to life than just drinking beer, you know? We can have the beer afterwards, but, you know, it gave, it gave people their perspective back. You know, so, to be a little bit more physical, to get to know their bodies more. So if people are listening to this and they, they want to know more about pancreation or maybe even train pancreation, you know, what resources are there available? Like, are there any schools in the U.S. or we got, we got to cut up to Montreal to train with you? Uh, I, have a, I have a couple of reps. I have one rep down in the Mississippi area of all places in Missouri. Uh, and... Uh, 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 they're, but he, he's, he, they're not really active because they're going through their own hard times. Right. And uh, right now the main place is uh, up here. I'm hoping to get a couple of representatives down in uh, the States. 
I have a large following from the States actually. And uh, I have worked with military bases in the States as well and military personnel, high-end military personnel there too, including around the world too, Portugal, Italy, uh, France, Switzerland. And uh, <clears throat> it'd be nice to get something happening in the States, but right now it's primarily over here. I stopped doing the seminars because it was just, well, COVID came around and uh, right. you know, we're over here. But right now I do have people that are working with me online. And uh, we do, we work meticulously and uh, methodically. They still get the benefit of it, although, you know, we might not be face-to-face -face physically. They st I still have a way of being able to present it to them where they can actually work it the way I want them to work it, you know. As long as they can get a punching bag or a bob bag up there, they can do very well, <clears throat> you know. So right now, I mean, the best way to go about it is my website. Get in touch with me through there. My email is... Uh, Another good way of doing it, uh, you know, online courses have not been that bad. I was very skeptical in the beginning, but given the results I've seen with some of my my uh, my uh, clients online, uh, I'm 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 sold. Gotcha. I am. So, what's the name of that website? And we'll put the link in the uh, in the bio also of this podcast. The website is pancreationcanada.com. No www. It's pancreationcanada.com. And there was a mix-up with the uh, domain name sometime last year because we had to change the website about a year ago a year or two ago i think and uh it's actually pancreation laval but if they punch in pancreation canada as is dot com they'll get to my website it'll take them to the website and uh, they can send me an email from there check out stuff i think i still have a couple of links in there they can go to uh, my youtube channel uh aris macris and uh they can check out some of the videos and documentaries that I've done there with the History Channel and uh, History TV. Yep. And uh, check out that too. Yeah, we'll drop that link in the bio too. And that's that's actually how I found you because I was I was just YouTubing around trying to find pancreation stuff, and uh, your name kept coming up like repeatedly, <laughs> like like only your well, name I'm came. Glad up. it still does. That's awesome. Yeah, like only your <laughs> name awesome, came up. Yeah. Like you and like I said, you and Jim Arvanitis, and then everyone else. I was like, I can't I can't find anyone else who's like actually like, in greece they were like, pretty upset you know in greece they were upset because they go uh, you know they, they were a little upset at the fact that pancreation was revived you know in uh, outside of greece you know in laval quebec i mean jim brought out the name and uh you know i took it a little further than that i started working with military bases around because you know i we kind of like uh, you know, Jim, I give kudos to Jim because he brought out the name and he made it aware to the public. Had it not been for that, for him, people wouldn't know what pancreation in the modern world was. You know, now we might do things differently because I delved more into not wanting to look like a kickboxer or a wrestler, you know, and putting those together because, you know, you can't take parts of different cars and put them into a Ferrari and say it's a Ferrari, you know, <laughs> by skeleton it is, but not by function. So uh, we did things a little differently, but had it not been for him, he wouldn't. We wouldn't know what pancreation is today, you know. And I think the Greeks were very upset at the fact that, you know, having, you know, me having cultivated it further out and uh, bringing it out into the military world too and law enforcement, you know, they were they were kind of like pissed at the fact that they you know that pancreation's rebirth was not in Greece; it was outside of Greece. You know, <laughs> they're still pissed off at that. You know, they're just having a hard time dealing with it. You know. <laughs> but it, it, it is what it is, you know. So, <clears throat> I mean, them too. They're still doing, you know, pancreation, just like in 
in the States, they're doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, Karate, Taekwondo, and they're calling it pancreational. It's not. That's just reality. It's not. You can't call Karate pancreation. It has its own system, distinct stuff, distinct methods, and distinct cos- you know, uh, um, uh, cosmetic look, you know? Yeah. Gotcha. Distinct aesthetics. Same with Kung Fu. You can't call that pancreation. All right. Well, we're we're gonna start wrapping it up. Uh, before we go, any uh, shout outs you want to give uh, friends, family, sponsors, etc. Uh, people, whatever. Uh, to my good friend uh, and special agent, DEA agent Philip Kearney, he was uh, one of my uh, first uh, good friends, and uh, he had come all the way over here to Canada at one point. He was a he was a big he still is a big guy in DEA. Uh, he had even taken the Canada office over here in Ottawa, the uh, the uh, the American Embassy, so he can stay close over here and and uh, train with me too. Captain Benjamin Taylor uh, from the uh, you know uh, Psychops unit, I think he's in Washington. He's back down in Clark uh, Clarksville, Kentucky. And uh, yeah, I used to live he there. Was, uh, he, uh, yeah, he's an amazing. I've been down there too, man. I love them grits. Let me tell you, man. <laughs> You know, I love them grits. You know, it was just, I had a great time. Good people, amazing. And he's another brother. And um, a big shout out to him. And uh, these people, we still keep in touch. And uh, and Jake Culver, my uh, my representative down in uh, Missouri. Anybody who's down in uh, in uh, Cape, uh, oh my oh. God, I forgot the name. Cape Girardeau. Uh, it's down Cape Girardeau, yes. Cape Girardeau Are you serious? I can't uh, believe, I can't believe I haven't found him yet. Yes, so, sir. So that so um, our list. So I, I did an event uh, at the right at the start of 2020, uh, where I basically traveled around and did obstacle course races all across the United States, and we actually went to that city because uh, one of my friends has a good chunk of property there, and he built an obstacle course. Um, so for our listeners, it's the uh, William Shell, the owner of Mythic Race. Uh, which is gonna have, have their first right. event in 2022, but I can't believe I haven't found them on the on a on the website yet. Oh man! Ah. Mm-hmm. And I love that place, man. It was such a quaint little town, man. It's like you know I could see myself living in those places, you know. And I had a good time. And also Ralph Gaines, man. This guy's an amazing individual. He's an author, uh, former uh, former ranger. Uh, sorry, former Delta Force. And uh, he was the one that, uh, he's a, another good friend of mine uh, who we did uh, some very intricate Spartan Sword and Shield stuff. He's an author and a very well-known author of the uh, historian, a historian, uh, author slash historian. He's uh, directly related to the uh, Jesse James uh, family. He owns their guns and he, uh, he releases them out to uh, museums around the country. Uh, you'll catch him on uh, the uh, movie The Assassination of uh, Jesse James with Brad Pitt in the Blu-ray. There's a small little documentary on him, and uh, he's another guy that I worked with also. He's an amazing individual, too, very knowledge uh, person. He was very, very interested in the uh, Spartan way of, uh, of, of, of training. Uh, he's another good guy out there, too. He's amazing. I, I've been blessed to meet up with some really, really awesome people, you know, really yeah. awesome. And I hope that, you know, this somehow settles down where I can come across over there and, and start doing some seminars and stuff. Uh, that's my dream. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Well, uh, thanks again for coming on. It was great 
uh, talking to you and listening. You know, I feel like I, I feel like I'm getting like a in-depth history lesson here. This is this is good stuff. So I know uh, I've I've listened to some of your you have a bunch of uh, YouTube videos on and some podcast stuff. So if anyone wants to hear more, um, they can head over yeah. to your YouTube and uh, listen to some of those episodes. I appreciate you letting me yap. You know, it's <laughs> not often I do that lately. I usually do that in my school. You know, and my my students actually tolerate me. And uh, so I appreciate you letting me lay out some of the stuff that I do know about, uh, you know, how these people were back then. Gotcha. And for, uh, for our listeners, again, uh, you can head over to teamstrengthspeed.com. We've got new articles published in there weekly. Just released one by uh, Jared Renier uh, talking about periodized training. We've got one coming up about um, uh, future of Tough Mudder and some concerns. Uh, one about Spartan World Championship thoughts. Um, some other ones about... Um, yeah, why you should care about races with no prize money. And then all my books are available on there. So my training books are available on there. Um, my biography, Ultra OCR Man, is available on there. And then, of course, we have Bleg Mitts. We're out of Bleg Mitt Lights, the uh, obstacle course race, racing mittens there. But we do have Bleg Mitt Extremes. So not planning on restocking until probably this summer. So uh, if you want Extremes and you're getting ready for Toughest Mudder, definitely pick those up sooner rather than later. And uh, let's see what else. Oof. All right, I think, I think that's about it. And then keep an eye on Stoke Shed. I know they're they're shooting a bunch of stuff, not only for KC Timber Challenge, the local OCR venue, but they're also shooting stuff for Mud Gear. So you'll be seeing some content from them. And then we just shot a bunch of stuff for Aurora Heated Apparel. So you'll see some some familiar faces on the Aurora Facebook page and uh, some of their advertisements coming up. Aris, thanks again for coming on. Really enjoyed it. And uh, I hope we can get to hook up one day. Yeah, good talking to you.